Welcome to Moving Into the Unknown podcast. I'm Kim McGregor and I'm coming to you live from the Gubby Gubby lands with my co-interviewer, Heidi Carroll. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Kim. And we're excited to be interviewing Margaret Mayo today from Adelaide, South Australia. Now, uh, Margaret is a Feldenkrais practitioner and assistant trainer. She graduated in 1966 as a physiotherapist from Adelaide Uni. During 1967 to 85, she worked as a physiotherapist in the neurological area. In 1990, Margaret completed the first Feldenkrais training program in Sydney, Australia. Uh, During the period from 1990 to 2002, Margaret had a private practice in Sydney, New South Wales. And in 97, she became an assistant trainer in the Feldenkrais method. Margaret assisted in uh, Feldenkrais training programs from 97 to 2019 in a range of locations, which sounds fantastic, in Sydney, in Berkeley, uh, Italy, Amsterdam, Switzerland, Melbourne, Adelaide and London. From 2003 until 2022, Margaret has practised as a Feldenkrais practitioner in her own private practice in Adelaide. Welcome, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Thank you, Kim. And thank you, Heidi, for being here. I'm on the land of the Ghana people here in Adelaide. Oh, great. Yep. Thank you for that. So, Margaret, you've certainly had quite a quite a long career in the Feldenkrais, in your Feldenkrais work, both as a as a practitioner and as an assistant trainer. And I noticed in uh, some of the reading I was doing. Um, that you're quite interested in people discovering how to help themselves. Can you explain your understanding of how the Feldenkrais method assists people to actually discover how to help themselves, please? Yeah, so when I worked in Sydney, my practice was primarily in FI because that was my background really in that I was used to -to one-to-one communication and dealing with people. I did run a couple of classes a week, but really they were not my prime interest at that time. And then I realised at that time that there were people who kept coming each week and I was getting hooked in to my role in helping them. And although I encourage them to do things for themselves, to to explore for themselves during the week before they came for their next lesson, lo and behold, they continued to just be dependent on me. And it wasn't actually a great place for me to be. And, And I tried to send these people away and they didn't want to go away. (laughs) And it was all really a bit uncomfortable. And I can remember once Gabby Yaron saying she would not see anybody unless they came to classes. And for me, the awareness through movement classes are so powerful because in the end, it is people taking responsibility for themselves. And, and so 
That's why my practice in Adelaide, as well as the financial constraints for people, is that it is primarily an awareness through movement practice. So it's moving. It's like you went you went on a transition from almost being that expert one-on-one to then where people then discover for themselves, oh, this is something that I can, where I, where I can help myself. Was that a personal um, transition for you in terms of your own learning? You know, in the end, it's quite seductive for people to be dependent on you. It's quite seductive. You feel really, you know, but then you realise it's actually not good, not good for anyone. It, a, it wears out the practitioner and B, the people are not learning and they're not progressing. Now, you could say, of course, you could argue there's something wrong with my FI and that could well be the case. I'm not, but it was much easier for me to to distance myself in a class situation. So, okay, so you were able to distance yourself and can you also talk about, so what is it that the method has or does in ATM that allows people to discover that, how to help themselves? So for many people doing awareness through movement, the biggest lesson they need to learn is not to achieve, not to try and achieve, not to do to the extent of their range of movement, their ability, but to more sense the process, to be in themselves in the process of sensing, feeling and listening to themselves, finding the connections through themselves, understanding how it is that the way you organise yourself over your pelvis can affect the way you can turn your head. I mean, that is a huge lesson for most people. So it's not about if you want to look over your shoulder behind you. Of course, this is a this is a fascinating thing because we used to say, oh, you know, if you want to reverse the car, move your pelvis. But of course, now everyone's got these screens straight in front of them. So they don't need to, to turn to look over their shoulder at all. But anyway, if you wish to turn, it is much more efficient to feel that your pelvis can be involved than to just screw your head on your neck. So, you know, they're very big lessons. And of, but of course, as always, when I talk about these things, it sounds so logical, so common sense, so simple that I almost sometimes feel like a fraud because it's so obvious to me. Mm. And is that made explicit? Do you think that that's generally those sorts of things are made explicit in, in ATM? Oh, how interesting. I think so. But of course, <laughs> of course, the thing is, depends who's teaching the ATM, doesn't it? <laughs> and if the person teaching wants a bit of mystery or not. That's what I was interested in, how much mystery. There's an art really, isn't it, in, in letting them discover balanced against having that understanding. So how do you go about that, Margaret? I ask questions. I don't give the answers. How do you know then what people come up with and where they're at? 
I don't. It's none of my business. <laughs> it's their business. It's their business. So, so if we go back to that example there about understanding that the way you organise your pelvis affects the way that your head moves, you'd ask a question based on that. Give us an example. So maybe I can give you a more concrete. So this week I've been doing, which is really unusual for me, but I have done the absolute classic lesson, the pelvic clock, right? And it is a fabulous lesson. And I haven't done it for years, but that's what I've done this year, this week, I mean. And, of course, the whole point of the pelvic clock is to get the transmission of force through your spine to your head, to feel that connection. Of course, you want to make a smooth a smooth circle with around the clock face with the small muscles around your pelvis, around your abdomen, your lower back, your hip joints and the like. But in the end, it's the transmission to your head. So I just kept asking a question, is your head moving? Do you have a sense of your head moving? What are your feet doing? So what happens then if people aren't sensing their head moving and they keep getting that same answer or they do sense their head moving but they're still... Because there's, there's different processes where you're getting it at different levels, aren't you? That... Exactly. So the interesting thing is that in my class yesterday morning there were 12 people and three of them were naive, literally had been to one or two lessons. They hardly got their head moving and the other, all the other nine had their head moving who'd been coming for some time. I mean, and that to me was fabulous. But then, so then I did a differentiation of a clock behind the head and said, is your pelvis moving? Is your pelvis cooperating? And that actually woke up one person. But, you know, next time they'll get it. I don't think we need that everyone needs to get everything every time. And I guess sometimes your intention is about the connection through the head and someone else finds something different. Well, maybe their, their pelvis is lying more balanced on the floor. Maybe... You know, may I did it one side of the clock. Maybe they feel one side's longer than the other. And they had that incredible experience of one-sided and then we worked the other and it evened up. You get, people get what they get when they get it. And you can't, you can't push it down their throats. But just keep drawing their attention. I do find occasionally it is refreshing because sometimes I feel like I'm literally banging my head against a wall that I just, I know that, that the instructor's got a, an, an intention and they keep alluding to this tension and it's like this, you know, elephant in the room, but I just can't see it. And sometimes I do find it refreshing for this reveal to then intellectually understand so that then I can help that process. Do you ever actually like Give the punch line? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Of course. But not in the beginning. I think it's that individual spectrum, isn't it? 
like we, it, it, it's such a unique experience. It, it seems that that's what you're talking about, that, you know, for some people, the method's not for them. And then there's some, their head will move. And then there's some, their head won't move, or it might suddenly move in after the, the eighth lesson or. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think, I think that's what's so wonderful about the method, that it is about the process. It is about sensing, feeling, and listening to yourself. And it's not about the teacher instructing. It's about offering this beautiful menu of delights. But as you say, Kim, it's not for everyone. Because there are those in the world that really like the answers. And for some people, the real challenge is the tiny movements. They're really happy to throw themselves around. And for some people, that's because they're, sen they're, they're, they're sensing themselves is really very, very difficult. And they can only sense themselves when they're, when their joints, when they're taking themselves to the end of range. And they're the people who, as children, could sort of, you know, wrap their legs around the back of their neck. And they were always encouraged to do that. And it's, it's they're paying for it when they're adults because it is really tough. So is that something that you really emphasise in your lessons, that it's the small, it's those small movements because that's where the magic is really? Yeah, it's totally, that's what I, the thing about the small movements is often when people have come for their first lesson, you know, they stand up and they cannot believe the change they feel in themselves and they just look at me and say, I thought that was nothing. Or the next week they come and they say, I couldn't believe what an effect that had for me and we did nothing. Or they say, I went home and told my husband what we did and he couldn't believe it or, you know, something. Because unfortunately still it's quite hard to get the men here. Mind you, I've got a few men. It's wonderful, wonderful. But the men are not very good at feeling themselves. I shouldn't really make these generalisations, but, I mean, it is true. They find it very hard in our macho world to just be quiet and listen to themselves. In many ways, the, the people who struggle most in the classes are the most mobile. I think I've only just got it. I've, only, I've done four years of the training and it's only been very recently that I've been able to do the small, slow movements where I actually heard the teacher saying, small, slow. And then I went, oh, small, slow. And then, and then I, and I sensed myself, whereas I think most of the way through my training, I didn't. Um, so it, it really, you know, for me as a teacher, I think it's great to hear you say that. It's almost like that's an important thing to emphasise to people. You know, small, small, slow, gentle movements and rest periods. But it, it's so tricky as well, because as you said, Kim, 
I am sure, I am certain in our training, they've said swollen low for four years, you know. <laughs> I didn't hear it. And so when does it, 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 I guess, is it just the maturation or is, is there an art to how you listen and how you say this, Margaret, so that it does land? It's what I said before. You get what you get when you get it. Yeah. But in, in that example that you gave about the pelvic clock, you could see that people weren't getting it. So you then listened to them in a way which then made you, I assume, changed on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about the listening as the practitioner, as the ATM teacher and, and what that involves for you? Because obviously it's not just auditory listening. There's a whole um, range of your own sense, I guess, as, as well as observation. Now, this brings me to, I mean, I've been teaching now for over 35 years, classes, ATM. I still prepare the lesson I'm going to teach two days before I'm going to teach it to make sure that it's inside me. And if it's not inside me, I cannot teach it. How do you prepare? Well, I'm very fortunate in having someone who'll read the lesson to me while I lie on the floor. And then the following day, I just lie on the floor just a couple of times and do a few moves and think about it. If it's a tricky lesson with moves, I write down the moves. Especially if I think the sequence of the moves is absolutely vital. Now, sometimes I, I, in my opinion, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. The purists would say it is absolutely vital every time. I think there's a little bit of room for manoeuvre there sometimes. But I think the structure, uh, the other thing is, for example, one of my colleagues, I've got a couple of examples of this. One person said, oh, I just arrive at the lesson and look at the class and decide what I'm going to teach. Well, quite frankly, that's rubbish. Absolute rubbish, right? That's number one. Number two person said to me, oh, I've got 50 lessons I know really well. I don't need to prepare anymore. I thought to myself, you will not be a practitioner in a year. Right? And she wasn't. She did craniosacral. Okay? The third was, oh, I just look at a whole group of lessons and I take a bit from here and a bit from there. That's not a lesson. Sorry. Feldenkrais really crafted those awareness through movement lessons. They're highly skilled, highly crafted. And they have got a beginning, middle, and end. And they've got a structure, which is really important because at the end is a function. But having said that, there is manoeuvrability within the structure. There's no doubt about it. And you can adapt and people can adapt. I mean, the other thing that, upsets me is that people say oh 
I couldn't possibly teach that lesson to my class because they couldn't get into the starting position. Well, my answer to that is you adapt the starting position to suit that person. You allow them to put a cushion underneath their shoulder or to put their arm up to the side, not above their head, or to, to keep their knees bent in, you know, crook position all the time rather than straightening your legs out. You can bend your legs out. I mean, you allow people. I mean, the most important thing is to be comfortable. And so you allow people to be in a comfortable position and to adapt to a position and then get them to move. Now, of course, in that adapted position, they're not going to get what someone who's unadapted is doing, the person who's in a strict position, but they're going to get something. And I think you should not underestimate the public. The public can do all sorts of wonderful things if only they're given the chance. And you're quite well known, I think, in the country and possibly internationally for helping people get up and down off the floor. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know if it's well known, but I mean, I can get people up and I can persuade people to give it a go to get down on the floor. And there are all sorts of ways. It doesn't have to be the beautiful spiral as described by Moshe Feldenkrais. You can give people assistance with a chair, with a stool. You can allow people to kneel and roll onto the front of the, roll their chest onto a stool and then quietly, or they can use their arms if they've got good arms. And, of course, the other thing is that most of the Feldenkrais tables are portable. So if there really is someone who cannot get onto the floor, they can do lessons lying on a Feldenkrais table. And many halls and things have got stages where people can just get up onto that. But there are many, many ways of adapting to get people up and down. And for most people, I'd say it's the fear that stops them getting onto the floor. They're frightened about falling downwards and they're frightened about not getting up. But do you know what? With an ageing population, it, it almost is our duty to teach people to get up and down off the floor. Yep. So you help them work through that fear by giving them other strategies, giving them yes. yeah, adapting, yes. adapting things. Yeah, that's great. But it also seems like your belief in them. I love that you said about underestimating the public, that you think that, and even the, the individual. So you must have faith and have seen that these people yeah. can have that capacity. Exactly, exactly. You're the belief that they, they needed to actually then believe in themselves, I guess. Yeah. So have you, have you, you've, can you give examples or think about particular people? Or, or Well, I mean, there is a little study that we did with the University of South Australia, and we had 10 people who'd had stroke, and we gave, and my colleague Jane Searle and I get, gave them lessons. This is with Susan Hillier and Ines Serrata. We, on the first day, Jane 
had these uh, these 10 people with stroke arrived and it took them three quarters it took her three quarters of an hour to get them onto the floor the second lesson that same week i came along and it took me five minutes now i'm not saying because i'm better than jane i'm saying she dealt with the fear and they knew they could do it so from that first time they knew then they could do it And, you know, they did it. I mean, it was extraordinary. And to me, that was one of the biggest things that came out of that little study was the fact that these people suddenly found they could do things. Well, that's the ultimate, isn't it? In yes. They're helping people discover how to help themselves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was extraordinary. There's a few principles there that you've talked about. There's there's believing in people's ability. There's being able to adapt, being creative and, and adapting the lessons. There's embodying the, making sure you've embodied the lesson and that, that you, you prepare prior to teaching ATMs. Is there anything else that you think is important, say, for a, a new practitioner in terms of being able to run ATM lessons uh, successfully? Well, I think... Another thing is, which is really reflected back into that, is the language you use. The language is so important. Well, I, I think the words we use, as it might be, listen, try, move towards. So, for example, slide your hand you know, down your thigh to your knee or something. But, you know, you always say slide your hand towards your knee. And then you see how are people going with this. And then you might say take hold of your knee if you feel that this is a possibility or if it isn't a possibility. Or actually a better example is slide your hand down your lower leg to your foot. Now, the instruction in the class is take hold of your foot. Well, there's no way I would say to my people who are basically in their 70s and oh, 60s, 70s and 80s, take hold of your foot. So you slide your hand towards your foot or toward your ankle or towards the outside of your foot. And then you do that a few times and then take hold of the top of your sock, take hold of the bottom of your trouser. When I can see where people can manage easily. Yeah. That's great. So you're really adapting the language and it removes that, removes that achievement orientation as well. Yeah. Yes. And so that because then people don't feel bad when they can't hold their foot. The other thing that I think I've done much more with experience is insert much more breathing into my class, into my lessons. Much more just attend to your breathing, loosen your jaw, soften your tongue in your mouth. All those things just stop the clenching of the teeth, the holding the breath, the effort, 
So, and yet, you know, the thing, the thing is you've got to give it a go in that you've got to try. So there's this thing about not trying too hard, but also trying. You've got to try to try. And again, it's that balance. Because if you're so sort of, you know, floppy and everything, well, then you don't do anything. I mean, last for, you know, last for living, there's action. We do want action. Yeah, but not to to the extent of compromising the other elements, the sensing and the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You must have um, you must have witnessed some some great uh, changes for people, Margaret, over your over your time. Are there any that stand out for you? I mean, there's one woman who said to me, "Well, of course, she's very very sort of direct and said, well, of course, since I've been coming here, I haven't had to go to the physiotherapist once a week.'" You know, as almost accusing me of some sort of hoodoo. Anyway, that was that was quite good. She's wonderful. I love her. Um, uh, there's, oh, I have to tell you about a young man. This was actually. But does that mean just just coming back to her? Does that mean she's suffering less pain? It means she's got more mobility. Oh, everything. She doesn't need to go for the patch up the fixer she's fixing herself and she knows she's fixing herself and she's taken responsibility for it but even if you say as you said a bit reluctantly in in admitting it (laughs) (laughs) it's quite interesting you know and the classes I mean they're you know anyway there it is well now there's a young man who I saw this was very early on and it was for FI He was blind and deaf. He must have had a bit of vision because he had a stick. He didn't have a dog. He had a stick. Anyway, his parents lived north of Adelaide and it was a train, you know, a long train, well, not a long train, but about 30 k's north of Adelaide. And he came to me and we did FI and so basically it was since, you know, I moved him, I pushed him through his spine, basically. I made him feel there he was. And the extraordinary thing that was reported to me by someone else was that he insisted on catching the train by himself home for the weekend to see his parents. And he'd never done that before. Now, I have got no proof that anything I had done made any difference. But I reckon it did. But I've got no proof. I can't write it up as a case study. I've got no proof. That's the really tricky thing, that that, that somehow we know in ourselves that connection of what you did with the spine has somehow empowered him, but, but it's a bit beyond us, isn't it, as to what had happened? Because he's human and he took that information and used it in his self-image. He realised he could do a lot more than he was being allowed to do by people protecting him. Yeah, so self-image. Self-image is a is an important factor. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. So, say some more about that, your, your 
your beliefs about that in relation to the method? Oh, well, the method helps us discover more of ourselves, mm. little corners in all ways. It's that were there that we didn't know existed. Yeah. Yeah. If we're prepared to listen. In a weird sort of way, the breathing helps you with your self-image as well as the feeling of your structure. Yeah. How does your breathing help you with your self-image, do you think? Expands. I don't know, inside. Hmm. Gives you skills of sensing inside yourself. Yes, okay. Yeah. So it helps you get to know yourself some more. Because I think it's, do you think it's about that it's um, instead of trying to reach a goal, it is giving you something to focus on in being in process? Yes. Yeah. Because there is an art to shift, isn't it? Because our society is so directed towards that, that end goal. That's right. That possibly the breathing gives you. And it's being in the present. I mean, I just, again, I stumbled across this since my training or maybe towards the end of the training that as soon as you hold your breath you're efforting and when you're efforting you're disconnected I'm just thinking about what you're saying I guess when you're efforting you're disconnected from who you are yeah rather than using the resources that you because you're out there you're outside yourself yeah 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 so if you're breathing mm. and you're, you're moving with grace and ease you're more, mm. more who you are and you and 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 those parts, as you said, that exist within you, you're utilizing those, and you what did you call it? The corners, all the corners, and all the edges. Oh, yeah, the edges. Yes, yeah. The lost little spots. The lost spots, which we and how do we lose those spots? You know, we could also talk about sitting. Mm -hmm. Sitting's horrible, really. And we go, when we're five, we're sent off to school and we sit at a desk. Quietly, quietly, and, and we have to not move. <laughs> no wriggling. That's it, no wriggling. No wriggling. It's a disaster. That's how we lose the corners. So you used the word a couple of times inside yourself, I think it's the term you use. Can you describe that? I guess how you do feel that you can go inside yourself and then what you do as a practitioner to help someone assist. You've given a few ideas, but is there more that you can describe for yourself and as you do it as a practitioner for other people? I'm very keen on our skeleton. And I talk about bones whenever I can. And I talk about the interaction of bones whenever I can. And I give brief little lessons on how our bones connect to each other in my classes. So teaching the a very, you know, loose basic anatomy, you think helps put people inside themselves? Well, yes, because if people can understand that their scapula, and I think my class would know where their scapula is, a, if they could understand where it is, and B, its role in movement of your upper limb, they're going to move their arms and organise themselves much better through their neck, through their arms. If people understand they've got great big muscles around their hips and their pelvis, 
and they know where their pelvis and their hips are, hip joints are. Oh, you see, that's the other big thing is many people don't know where their hip joints are. So how then can they stand up efficiently? They can't. Mm. They can't. So I, I'm very keen on the hip joints in particular. And I'm very keen on talking about the fact that the small muscles are what we need for strength. Okay. Because we need to organise the small muscles everywhere to work together. And I don't name the muscles, but I talk about small muscles. So you're talking about that, that integration aspect of organisation. So you teach people, for example, where the hip joint is. So in the class, is it a matter of then that they physically can touch that point, that you keep referring to it? Yeah, I, I get them to put their fingers right in their groin, deep in their groin. Because most people, if you say put, touch your hip joints, they'll put their hands on top yes. of their pelvis. Like we did at school, hands on your hips, hands on your hips. Yeah, <laughs> hands on your hips. Wrong. Well, at school they wouldn't want you putting your hands on your hips. They'd be in the <laughs> groin and think where, how close that is to you know what. No wonder they moved the hips so long ago. Yeah, no wonder they moved the hips to the top of the pelvis. But actually from a movement point of view, it's a disaster, absolute disaster. So you're really speaking to Moshe's beginning of his ATM book, we act in accordance with our self-image that, you're exactly. trying to educate yeah. people to in yeah and then i think moving your breath around can be absolutely amazing so what do you mean by moving your breath around well there are these fabulous breathing lessons of you know the, to the you know the apex of your lung down to the base at the back and and really for and and moving your floating ribs at, the, at your back. I mean, there and these these lessons that move that you can just focus on different parts. Think of it from inside, moving up, moving outwards. All those lessons are just fabulous. Even the seesaw breathing. Oh, the seesaw breathing is monumental, monumental. The way that can free up people's chest. The idea, I mean, also, it's really, I mean, I don't talk about muscles a lot because Feldenkrais people don't, but, I mean, the idea of your diaphragm moving up and down, I mean, most people have no idea about that. But that's extraordinary. Yeah, and the connection of that, connection of that to your pelvic floor even, I, I had no idea of it. Yeah. And the liber the how liberating that can be when you realise that exactly exactly, and then I think right at the beginning you said sometimes you feel like an imposter because some of these ideas are so simple that um, they're so profound that once you get it and feel it in your body, yes. you're completely different, yes. aren't you? It sort of seems like common yeah. sense, but but it's not. Like there's still I I teach yoga and you know out and out in the community everyone's still trying to hold their core and squeeze their butt muscles and do all sorts of things that you know that and it and to try and teach people differently is very very tricky i mean i have a colleague she's a physiotherapist who's who's an expert on pelvic floor 
And she hates Pilates because she said there are women who cannot push out babies because they've been tightening their pelvic floor so much. They cannot let it go. It's quite interesting. It's quite amazing. And, I mean, of course it's good to have a good pelvic floor, but also it's good to be able to let it go. You need the options, don't you? <laughs> you do need a few options. And this is and this is really what I love about the Feldenkrais method because there are no recipes. I can remember lying on the floor in our tra- in my training in the in the late 80s and thinking I can't take my knee in there. That's I've got to take my knee out. I've got to keep my hip joint mobile. I can't take my knee across to the other side to to make my hip joint to adduct and internally rotate. That that's a that's an absolute sin. Yeah. So what you're speaking about, what I'm hearing is the so- social, cultural, and even academic ideas that the Feldenkrais method has to sort of slowly wade its way through. Because socially, for example, you know, 60, 70, you didn't want to move your knees apart because that was bad etiquette. Exactly, exactly. That I'm, I remember one woman came and she, she had some terrible back pain and she basically had her knees locked together in sitting. And if I just touched her knee and tried to move her knee from side to side, it was rigid. But you see, you have to be very careful too, because emotionally that can be, you know, you don't know what's been going on in people's lives. And emotionally that can be absolutely awful. Or it could be just that her mother said, don't sit with your legs apart. Oh, yes, I've got another story. So there's this wonderful woman who had scoliosis from childhood. And when she went, she they, her mother took her to a doctor and it was quite, it was, you know, very obvious, quite considerable. And she was offered rods in her spine. And she and her mother, after a discussion, decided, no, they wouldn't do it. And the surgeon said to her, when they said, no, they wouldn't do it, he said, when you are 40, you will not be able to breathe. When she was 39 and a half, she came to see me. She only came once. I just put my hand on her ribs and said, feel this. Put my hand somewhere else, feel this. Somewhere else, feel this. Feel this. I said, you'll be okay. You can breathe. So her self-image was very much affected by what was said to her medically oh margaret how do you i'm interested in how you listen so you you know you talked about 
this person came in and 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 that you know I feel a bit emotional even hearing that story because I think that's it was absolutely shocking so powerful so powerful mm. and you probably saved her life in some ways or she you helped her save her own life I mean how do I know I've never seen her since none of my business I just did what I thought I could do at the time and there was no no thought of correcting her scoliosis not a thought, not a thought of anything. She was very fixed. It was quite severe. So after teaching ATMs for over 35 years, you say, what keeps you going? What do you think that you're obviously, I think you've, you've got classes going now. I can see that you're going to keep ta- teaching classes in the future. What keeps you going? It's incredible. It is the wonder, seeing what can happen, seeing people absolutely love it, unbelievable things can happen. I can't tell you what they are. They're they're sort of, yeah, and of these humans, and they're all different, and they all get something different, and I love it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you, Margaret. Um, You started saying that you actually started over 35 years ago concentrating on functional integration because that was known to you through um, your physio work. But then Gabby Yaron introduced you to the idea that she would not see anyone with unless they had come to a class. And then you realised the power of the ATM lesson because people then can take responsibility for themselves. And you believe the biggest lesson in ATM is not to achieve, not to be goal orientated, to actually be in themselves to sense the process. And sometimes you see the Feldenkrais process as so magical that you feel like a fraud, I guess even after so many years, (laughs) that there are such big, simple ideas um, and some things are so obvious to us now and can be so powerful. And you spoke about the power of the small movements, that they cannot be dismissed, that something so small can have such a big impact on our bodies and how we engage in the world. And after teaching for so long, you still make sure that you're prepared. You've got your lessons two days before and you make sure that the lesson is inside of you. You still believe the structure of the lesson is really important, but then be responsive to what's in the room as well. I think one big lesson I got from this is not to underestimate the public. There's certain fears, there's certain things that individuals are going through, but the potency of humans, the potency of the method means, you know, they can reach a whole different level to what they expect. You also spoke about how the language is so important. And for one example you gave was that word towards, that you don't necessarily have to touch your foot, but can you go towards? And through this process, we help us discover more of ourselves. You're very keen on talking about the bones, the joints, and that what is what you think people can help get them an understanding of thinking themselves from the inside. 
We also discuss the social, cultural, emotional aspects of our world and, and being human and that Feldenkrais in its simplicity is sort of coming through that. You still are passionate and love teaching your classes after this time, all this time. If anyone wants to get in touch with Margaret, the best way is through email. It's Margaret, M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T dot Mayo, M-A-Y-O at bigbond.com. Margaret, thank you so much for your passion. It's been a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. I feel very inspired. Oh, 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 oh,